0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Pat Thompson, who, along with Christine Hall, is the author of Schools and Cultural Citizenship, Arts Education for Life. Uh, So welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Um, This is both, uh, I think, a fascinating um, book in terms of the research that it's uh, describing and, and, and kind of engaging with, but also I think it's an incredibly um, important and kind of timely book, uh, as actually we'll illustrate when we start talking about the research. And I suppose the place to start is probably a question about, well, why were you writing a book about kind of the arts in school? And, and the way to, to dig into that is with the central research project, uh, the, the tail project, the Tracking Arts Learning, engagement project so I wonder if you could introduce the uh, the listeners to the project and I guess kind of say a bit about why you've written a book about
0: it okay um so you know when you're doing a research project and you end up somewhere at the end that you didn't quite imagine that you were going to end up that um so basically Chris and I had been working on arts education and creative education for a long time, actually since about 2003, and we've done a whole range of projects, and one of the things that we'd been doing is working with the Royal Shakespeare Company on the one hand and Tate on the other, and we'd been particularly interested in the kinds of professional development that they offered to teachers. And we'd spend a lot of time together but also separately being part of these professional development programs and seeing what the teachers did with them while they were there. And very occasionally, we were able to be in schools and see what they'd done in schools. And that was more the case with Royal Shakespeare Company, because Royal Shakespeare Company actually work with teachers in schools as well as outside of schools. And so we'd done some work in schools. But we had this question, really, which was, well, you know, what happens in the longer term? What do the teachers actually do with this after six months, 12 months, two years? You know, does it? actually make a difference to what they do and does it make a difference to what happens to their students? Um, You know, it's all very well for teachers to do something different but it may not necessarily do anything different for the students at all. So we started this research project thinking that what we were going to do was over three years to have a look at what the teachers did with the learning that they'd done um, that they, you know, they'd learnt things with the Royal Shakespeare Company and with Tate, and what what did the kids get from it? So that was really our question, and we asked the Royal Shakespeare Company and Tate to nominate fifteen teachers each um, who had been, you know, pretty seriously involved with their professional learning programmes. Um, for some time, you know, more than more than a year. And in, in some cases, it was quite a period of time, you know, five, six, seven years that they'd been engaged in this kind of professional learning. And because we then had 30 teachers, we also then had 30 schools. And in fact, what we decided to do was to look at 60 teachers. So the 30 teachers who'd been heavily involved with the two professional development um, programs and another of their colleagues in the school and we decided to do 30 case studies of the teachers in the schools and their students um, and when I say case studies what we did was we went to the schools each year we interviewed the teachers we and we watched them working we interviewed their students from in the last three years of schooling so in England that's the GCSE the General Certificate of School Education and A-level students Um, and we talked to the head teachers in their school we took a lot of photographs we looked at a lot of documents um, and we did that for three years and at the end we found something that we hadn't expected Um, which was really that um, and, you know, when you think about it, it's pretty obvious, but what the teachers were able to do with their learning was a a lot to do with what was going on in their schools, that they could learn a lot in the program but actually how much they were able to do in the school and how much the students therefore learnt um, was very much to do with the way that the schools were organised
1: yeah, I guess this is this uh, concept that you you introduced quite early on in the book of of, of an arts rich uh, school, and I'd love to to know more about that. Both in terms of well, what actually is an art arts rich school, but also that the book is not like a kind of um, long celebration of how kind of wonderful uh, arts rich schools are. It also says there are actually some serious challenges. Um, around kind of supporting, running, being part of an arts-rich school. So, yeah, could, could you introduce um, what that term means and I guess kind of what uh, the struggles over it might be?
0: Yeah, we we took the term from some work that was conducted in the US by um, Professor James Catterall, um, who's now died. Um, he was at Stanford and he did um, a series of longitudinal studies, extremely large longitudinal studies, most of them were with um, young people who we might classify as being at risk, you know, at risk of not, um, of not finishing school, but actually largely, you know, young people who've been put at risk by their life circumstances, you know, they come from um, places that are not very well treated um, by policymakers, so they're poor or they're, they're black, um, they're urban extremely isolated in rural locations and so on. So cattle was interested primarily in both the arts but also in what happened to young people who were marginalised educationally. Um, and one of the studies that he did, it's a huge study, it's about 12 years long, it's about 25,000 young people and he followed them through high school and then what happened um, after high school, And obviously not all of them finished high school but some of them did and some of them went on indeed to college, and what Catterall um, was able to locate is that of the young people in his cohort study who went to schools that were disadvantaged. So it's not just the young person; it's actually schools that were disadvantaged. So they were schools that served, you know, populations, um, communities, geographical locations that were generally poor. Um, very often um black or Latina um, Latino populations as well. Um, and he was able to, I guess, demonstrate through this study that the young people, the, the, the dis the disadvantaged schools where they had very intensive arts programs, the young people who'd gone to those schools actually did much better. They were more likely to go to college. Now his figure is fourteen percent. You know. Now you might think that fourteen percent doesn't sound like very many, but actually, most school um, most intervention programs that try and make a difference for the young people who are least likely to do well out of schooling have much lower what are called effect rates than that. They're generally somewhere under ten percent. So Catterall argued that you know if you really wanted to have a go, if a government really wanted to have a go at Something that made a difference for young people, um, the young people who who did least well out of schooling, then they really should take this notion of arts richness very seriously. Um, and that kind of tallied with that his finding tallied with the kinds of things that we'd seen in Creative Partnerships, which was this huge program that in England, um, and it wasn't just about the arts, although it actually mainly did fund artists. But it, Creative Partnerships ran from two thousand and three to two thousand and eleven, and in England, and it it provided to one out of every five schools in England it provided ongoing funding for them to have artists in school so it was a really enormous and the biggest arts funding education program ever anywhere and we'd been we'd done quite a lot of research in and around creative partnerships but hadn't done a really enormous um, longitudinal study but we'd been in enough disadvantaged schools to Understand that there was something important that the arts did. Um, We'd kind of forgotten that a bit when we started Tale, but when we started to look at the schools where the teachers were, we could see that all of them took the uh, other secondary schools, all of them took the arts reasonably seriously, but some of them were what Catterall would have called arts rich schools. And he had a pretty limited definition. What he said was that they had to have specialist staff and they had to offer a program that young people could start at the beginning of high school so in you know england in in year 7 and they and it had to be offered to them all the way through school so they could actually take the subject all the way through secondary school and then follow it through into college and he said that there was something, you know, indefinable, a kind of a je ne sais quoi about the schools, about the arts-rich schools, which was to do with their arts richness, which was also important. But because he was working with these kind of enormous databases, he didn't have time to go in and actually look in depth at what an arts rich school was or what it did but it did have those criteria it offered a very full and comprehensive arts program which allowed young people to continue their study all the way through to the point where they'd be making choices about what they did when they left school either further or higher education um, and um, you know it was a school which was conducive to the arts or it, it was in itself kind of culturally rich in one way or another. So when we saw the schools in our study, um, where which, in fact, all of them really sort of met that definition, but some of them were I guess, culturally richer and where the arts programs were really part of the school's identity and really part of who they were and the way that they did things. And they did offer really comprehensive arts programs in the early years in high school and these were compulsory for all kids when they started high school that actually did, you know, art and music and drama in particular as kind of key subjects. It wasn't a couple of weeks of this and maybe, you know, it was taken by a teacher who didn't have a special qualification. They all had, you know, really substantial um faculties that dealt with the arts um and they offered you know these really solid programs arts programs subject programs up to the point where the kids were able to make um, make choices and then when the kids were making choices, they didn't timetable all the arts choices on at the same time so you could only pick one subject. It was actually possible, you know, to do two or three um, arts subjects at GCSE and perhaps two in at A-level. So there really was a kind of meaningful way of studying one or two art subjects all the way through the school. And because the arts were valued in the school um, and seen as important and as as an important, important area of study in their own right, you know, you could go into the school and see the arts, you know, when you, as soon as you go into the foyer, you could see the arts and it wasn't just – you know, kind of like you might see in an insurance office. You know, it was a sort of corporate representation of of, of what the school was on about. It was lots of kids' work around the place. There were always lots of performances going on. So in an arts-rich school, even for those kids who didn't choose an arts subject in GCSE and A-levels, they were actually still surrounded by the arts um, as they went through school. So it was part of the school culture.
1: The the book sort of it, it's not as neatly divided up uh, as I'm I'm going to claim now, but but the book kind of deals with how these schools are managed, what the teachers do, the um, partnerships with uh, the arts organisations, and then the, the children's experiences, and, and maybe we'll we'll try and take uh, at least three of those uh, four elements um, as as we give a sense of the book's analysis, and and, and I guess you, you've really laid out. Um, the meaning of an arts-rich school but but the question that follows from that is well what kind of practices go on if you know the timetabling works and the kind of value of the arts is is clear but what actually happens say in the classroom and and so one of the things you do early in the book is talk about uh teachers kind of uh, activities strategies practices and then later on in the book you talk about uh the students and uh, their experiences so so maybe we'll deal with teachers first like wh- wh- what do, what do teachers actually do in an arts rich school um, what what's the kind of um, the meaning of that for uh, a teacher in the classroom
0: I, I think so there's probably two or three things I need to say just as I as a way of getting into that I think one of the things to say is that the teachers probably and largely did, but more generally, I think the teachers reject the the kind of prevailing way of thinking about school subjects, which is to think about them as being um, kind of core and other. So, and often this is expressed in um, in schooling when people talk about academic subjects and non-academic subjects, okay? So the arts are a non-academic subject. Um, and I think to start with I mean none of the teachers that we worked with and in fact that generally the school leadership as well didn't accept that kind of division um, and any more than they accepted the idea that the arts the, the arts were about people who were good with their hands and not with their heads you know there's this very old division in schooling which is the difference between theory and practice between the vocational and the academic but you know people were I think the teachers and the school leadership and many of the other teachers in the school were clear that art subjects as well as, as, you know, subjects like, um, you know, phys ed, for example, but particularly the arts, I think, have have very, a very strong kind of knowledge base and it's not just about, well, making is part, an important part of what you do in the arts, making and doing things. It has a very substantial intellectual history and a really important kind of role, social role. So that's the first thing that I'd say. I think the second thing is that in arts-rich arts rich schools now and have really for since... Um, the um, particularly the conservative governments came into power, but even under the preceding coalition have really but you know been working against the grain of education policy um, because education particularly the conservative government the last two conservative governments have have had a kind of policy based on this notion of the academic and the non-academic subjects, that what they want schools to do is to teach, you know, English, math, science and something else, um, and that's what's going to be most important. So the conservative government invented two things. Firstly, it inv- and both of which really are school performance measures, but they really skewed what it was that schools did so they, inv- they invented this thing called the English baccalaureate, which is exactly those subjects. Um, and to start with, they persuaded um, universities that those were the subjects that were going to count for university entrance and and for a while Russell Group universities for example actually had a policy of not really counting the art subjects that people arrived with you know what they wanted and and what they said they were interested in were A-levels you know the following A-levels English maths and the sciences um, maybe a language and um, you know so that really that really affected what schools offered you know because parents and kids were looking at that, you know, that this is what universities said they wanted um, because the government was prioritising that. And so schools that were offering, you know, wanted to continue to offer a lot of arts, arts subjects were having to work against this kind of prevailing view of of what was important to actually get from your schooling, from the end of schooling. The Russell Group did change its mind and I have to say, in part, not only because but in part because of the evidence that we produced through the tail project which showed how, how in fact, it was skewing young people's decision-making um, about the subjects that they continued with both at GCSE and at A-levels uh, really did um, have a contributing and continues actually to have, to be a contributing fact to the decline of, of people studying Uh, Subjects um, in schools because the schools are also subject themselves, subject to this other kind of audit measure, which is—I mean—we're getting a bit arcane here, but it's called Progress Eight, and it's a very English kind of thing, you know. But schools are judged um, as part of the way they're judged to be good, bad, or you know, needing. Um, intervention um, on how well the students progress in these subjects over time, um, and so it's it's you know these these are pressures on schools to make sure that um, kids are doing these subjects and not doing other subjects which are not counted. So uh, in really important ways, I think the um, arts-rich schools make decisions. That then they're going to keep offering the the arts in this relatively hostile policy environment, and for some time there was the option, and the current government is managing to kind of close this off as well, but there was the option of studying a a, a kind of another kind of qualification, um, which was a kind of technology qualification, which a a BTEC it was called, which kind of allowed, it was an alternative to A-level and it offered an alternative route and some of those were in the arts and some of the arts-rich schools offered that qualification um, rather than actually try and put all their eggs in the the A-level basket. So that's the kind of broad context I think in which we were looking at the arts-rich schools, and that's some of the things that they were up against. You know, they were also up against obviously the fact that, you know, school budgets have been declining for a long time. Some of the arts are not cheap to teach at all. They, you know, they've got a lot of consumables in them um, and expensive kit. Um, you know, it's a textbook is considerably cheaper than a year's supply of art materials. Um, but um, you know what they what what they just dis- when they decide to do it, and they decide to keep their art staff and not to move them on and not to replace them in the early years of high school with generalists who might have done a bit of music or a bit of art and might do a bit of filling in. Um, you know when they decide to do that then there are other things that come into play Um, and I guess for us the key thing that we see and we saw this in creative partnerships and we see it now in our primary school project as well um, is that the The arts curriculum the arts and by that I mean you know art art craft and design music drama um, in particular um, are designed for young people to become more and more independent the further on they go in school so it's the only school area set of subjects that do this that you know you start out being you know, reasonably in primary school, being reasonably kind of teacher-directed and quite teacher-directed, of course, and it's very skills-focused. And the further up you go in school, the more you're being encouraged to develop your own projects, to do your own research, to develop your own ideas, to develop a bespoke set of tools and techniques that you can use. Um, And so the teachers understand this, um, generally as, as see and they generally see young people as artists so they see their job as making them f- think and work like artists independently um, collaboratively as appropriate um, but engaging with um, you know serious um, art Uh, conversations whether you know no matter what the kind of genre or the media so it's not simply about engaging with a canon it's kind of kind of bringing your own cultural practices your everyday practices and interests which might come from media or youth cultures or um you know, church or temple or mosque or you know what, whatever it is, you you bring with you um, to use those, and also to learn and acquire um, the the ideas and the ways of working and thinking and being that there are in. Um, not only historical but but also contemporary art practices. So it's kind of like joining in a cultural conversation. So, you know, the arts-rich school teaches very much Talk about um, young people as artists, and they very often, you know, they'll, they'll open their lessons with, you know, with talking about, you know, the the kind of projects that the young people are doing. Um, you know, what other artists they might be interested in, plays that they they might go and see, what they might have a look at on YouTube. It, it's a, a much different kind of situating of what it is the young people are doing from what you might find in another subject area.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it Um, what do the young people, what do the students um, think of this? Later on in the book, you've got quite a detailed engagement with with their views. And, and, and what were their views about both this, uh, I guess, kind of um, different and, and slightly unique way of approaching education, but also the kind of broader context in which they were learning?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um... We spoke in the Tail Project. We spoke. We had a, a survey of um, young people across across the schools who were and weren't doing art subjects. Um, and so there were about four and a half thousand of them and we also talked in focus groups to nearly another thousand and a half. So I guess we've got 6,000 responses from young people and we can um, pinpoint, you know, out of those, the ones who are still doing art subjects and the ones that aren't. The focus groups were all with young people who were still studying and had chosen to study art subjects and we asked them a lot about Why they did that? Why they thought? What they thought about the arts? What they thought they got from um, studying arts subjects? And I guess the first thing to say is that they, most of them, almost without exception, they were really cross about the way that the arts had been marginalised in policy. You know, they took it personally, Um, but they were. They also had really um, sensible things to say about why studying the arts were important and you know it wasn't it wasn't actually you know arts advocates very often talk about you know it's important because the creative industries are important and this is a pathway and whether there were some kids that were interested in um, the creative industries there were actually more of them in the performing arts um, working on Royal Shakespeare programs than there were perhaps in the art and design group but You know, by and large, it it was very much about, um, um. You know, this is this is really important. You know, we've always had the arts. The arts tell us who we are. They tell us where we've been. They they help us think about where we might go in the future. Um, There was that that group of responses. There were a group of responses around. The relationships we have with arts teachers are really different. The art rooms, uh, the arts rooms are really different. There's a different atmosphere here. It's calm. When I'm doing the arts, I don't feel nearly as hassled. I I do have to work hard. um, And I, you know, I do have to do some stuff that I don't particularly like sometimes, like all the documentation I have to do about my decision making. But basically, the word they use is relaxed. Used to drive, when we talk about this with teachers, it drives them crazy. Um, you know it's not meant to be relaxing but actually the kids are talking about you know this kind of sense of well-being that they have this kind of sense of being um I guess, more more able to do what they want to do. They're, they're able to work at their own pace. It's not that they're not challenged. It's not that they don't do ambitious projects. I mean, typically in arts projects, um, kids, will when you ask them to bring their best work to show you, and we did that all the time, they'd bring something and they'd say, you know, when I started this, I never thought I'd be able to do this. You know, I had to have umpteen goes at it um, and, you know, I, because I stuck at it and I got some support from my teacher and my friends and, you know, a bit maybe from from home as well. You know, I stuck at it and, wow, look what I've done. Um, So I think the other thing that they told us very strongly is that they had a really strong sense of what they could do. They had a strong sense of agency, if you like, and self-efficacy, as we'd say in education. You know, they had sort of self-belief that they could do it. If they kept at it, so there was also that kind of sense of you—you you, you could always do better, you could always do more, um, and you know, as long as you, as long as you had a kind of faith in the process, and you were self-evaluative and self-critical about what you were doing, and and you just didn't, you know. Rush something or whatever. You you, seri- you took it seriously. You know you were going to end up with something pretty good if you kept going. Um, so I, you know, you don't hear kids talking like that about other subjects. Um, and so you know, it's, and that's why we argue that. Not that the other subjects aren't important or that the arts are better than them, but what we suggest is that this shows why the arts are um, have an important part of the school curriculum. They're not, you know, to be shoved to one side. They're actually a place where young people find, find um, themselves a lot of the time and what they can do. Uh, but it's because of their... Um, inclusiveness if you like it's you know it engages lots of kids because they use a range of media and they're able to bring their own interests and experiences to it um it's not all based in writing they're often longer projects challenging projects they're collaborative projects etc um it it's, um it's the kind of experience that does encourage kids to come to school actually so attendance changes in attendance are actually one of the things that happens in when schools become arts rich and it was something that happened we saw in the creative partnerships project and which the National Foundation for educational research were actually able to document changes very positive changes in attendance so it kind of changes how you think about school how you think about yourself and it gives you some options to kind of follow through and I think the kids were able to explain all of that to us.
1: I mean you've you covered a huge amount of detail in, in terms of the teachers and and, and and the kids experiences and I guess you've also sort of gestured towards the idea of, of the arts building um, these Um, cultural citizens as as the book's title refers to but I'm left I think uh, with a broad question that really links back to to something you'd said earlier about the way the education system and various education reforms have marginalized the arts in schools What, what do you think the book tells us about the future for the arts in schools is it a matter of kind of constantly having to make the case, is it a matter of now we've got, you know, some quite firm evidence that the book really puts forward or, or is it a case that this, uh, I suppose, kind of struggle for an arts-rich school um, is, is going to become even more difficult in the future?
0: Yeah. I suppose, you know, one of the things that we um try and do in the book, I'm not sure how well we do it, one of the things we try and do and um, we're using Bourdieu um, in the book, which is, you know, probably not surprising. A lot of people who work in the arts um, and in education use Bourdieu, and you know, we're really looking, in part, at the kind of intersection of three what Bourdieu would call fields or spheres. You know, we're really looking at education and how it, how that overlaps and intersects with the kind of cultural sphere and how that is part of the kind of broader, what would you call the field of power or, you know, society writ large. And I guess there are interesting ways that those fields overlap. And one of them, I think you asked me about the teachers. I'm getting, going to get round to the answer, but, um, you know, one of the things you asked me was about the teachers. And I think one of the things about the teachers is that, um, I mean, we call them arts broker teachers because, you know, they were continuing to um, introduce their students to the art, the art, the world of the arts. I mean, many of them had... An arts practice of their own, but all of them were um, active audiences and cultural participants, even if they weren't cultural producers themselves. And they were continually um, there was a, just a continuing conversation and engagement with what was going on outside of the outside of the education field, if you like. And um, one of the things that Catterall found actually in his study and this has been replicated in other studies um, as well sort of smaller studies on in one a couple going on at the moment um, where people are experimenting with arts rich arts richness in education um, and it's certainly what we found in the in the tail project was that the the young people were actually more were, were more engaged than their peers in um, cult, it varied, a range of cultural activities, and what we call um, they were active, um, critical, engaged audiences and active cultural producers in their own right. So there's many more than the than their national than their the national average. So you know there's there's something that that's going on there that's that's important. It seems, however, not to be. Um, appreciated by um, by you know current um, current policy makers or even um, arts and and you know cultural policy makers seem not to see if you like the kind of process of creating audiences through schooling um, which is I think one of the things that's going on um, in through uh, arts education and it's what you want to happen Um, but I I quite frankly, can't see at the moment um, the current government sort of changing its responses to arts education. It's very wedded to the ideas that are inherent in the the English baccalaureate. And, in fact, we've got, you know, the current Prime Minister suggesting people need to do even more maths. Um, No idea where we're going to get all the maths teachers from, but, you know, even more maths than they do now. So there's a kind of complete... Um, although that's not what they want for their own kids, it's not that what their own kids get. It's probably not what they got either in the schools that they went to. But you know, they seem very happy for other people's children to get a much kind of reduced educational diet. Um, I have to say that you know it. It. I don't know how we'd persuade the current government that um, that the arts were a good thing. But but I think it would also be helpful if the arts and cultural sector were a, were a bit more aware of the positive things that an arts education can do, that it's not all about kind of self-esteem, it's not all about well being, but, you know, that's important and it's part of it, but is actually about, you know, people learning the disciplines and understanding the disciplines and becoming engaged in kind of cultural conversations and it not just being left to people um, his parents can afford to take them to things by themselves or pay for private t- t- tuition or send them to um, expensive schools. Um, so but you know, I'm not that hopeful, I have to say, Dave, about the the long term prognosis at a policy, at a kind of big policy level. I'm a little more hopeful about the possibility of people within schools actually seeing the sense of some of this. And it does seem to me, you know, one of the things that's happened in English education policy is that the school system has become very fragmented. Um, and, you know, it's it's full of very different kinds of schools, organised in very different ways. Local authorities have been systematically cut out of, um, of the equation. You know, most secondary schools now in England are, are run by what are called trusts, their are academy trusts. Um, primary schools, there are more of them in local, it's still in local authorities. But, you know, it's a system now where it's pretty hard to get schools to to, to do things except by, you know, extreme threat or really um, intensive and, pun- well, quite often punitive kind of regulations. But schools actually do have some autonomy and they can make decisions to are by themselves to take up curriculum specialisations and I remain a little hopeful that particularly at the moment when schools are you know post-pandemic schools are reeling with um, kids with mental health problems, uh, kids who you know haven't been with other kids for a long time um, you know who with all sorts of kind of social issues that they're dealing with where there's um, I guess a kind of Um, you know crises around attendance in schools you know that the sort of connections that um, you can see in the arts and creativity in terms of making school more attractive of giving people more opportunities of giving them more hope that schools themselves will actually um, more of them and more of them will kind of become interested and, and take it up. If we can get that message out, if you like, to this kind of middle level of the, of the school system, because it seems to me that's where the change is, is going to happen now. It's not, it's not going to be from the top. It's not going to be from Westminster. But it might be with the Academy Trust that's got 56 schools that decides that this, is, this might be an interesting thing to have a look at seriously.
1: In terms of your own work, um, I mean that you, you've outlined, you know, several research questions, several books um, that we we could kind of get into that, that for future research. But what are you doing in terms of uh, your own thinking, uh, kind of now and, and next?
0: Yeah, what we what we're doing at the moment, we're in the third. Where we're coming to the end of the third year of a three-year primary school arts-rich schools program called RAPS, which is researching um, arts in primary schools. It's funded by the Freelance Foundation. Um, And we've been in, um, well, we have a a survey of some 76 schools. We've been in 40 schools um, for two years. We're intensively in 22 of those schools, Um, and, uh, look, I, I have to say, if you wanted to, wanted the antidote to, to, you know, all the gloom and doom stories about what's going on in, in English education, you could go into any one of those 40 schools and come away beaming. Um, the trouble is that it, you know, it's patchy and, you know, these are a minority of schools, but we really hope that we can get the word out about what's happening in them. Um, I think, You know, there is national research here, also in the US, and some of it's through things like systematic literature reviews through randomised control trials, which suggests that if you take up the arts, particularly in primary schools, your test results don't go down. Um, so in other words, you, you you know, there's nothing to lose by actually taking on the arts in primary schools. And what we hope to be able to show, that's absolutely true in the schools that we've, um, that we're looking at, um, although they, that wasn't why we chose them. They're also, by and large, schools that are doing um, actually a bit better in inspection terms than other schools other similar schools and we didn't choose them for that reason either. Um, but you know we hope to be able to show in this in this project um, how it is that you actually establish the foundation of a really good arts learning um, and so you know what we what we're able to show I think is that um, you know what happens in schools where they offer um, art music, and drama to every child, every week, every year. Um, you know, and these the schools have not only generally got, you know, really great attendance, but they're joyful places to be in, um, you know, and you want to come away if you've, you know, got kids of your own, for example, you come away and have a look at kids who come home saying what wonderful things they've done that day. It is what's possible um, in, in these schools. And it's not the only kind of school that can offer these experiences, but I think that is really what we want to show and then after that, well, I don't know, wait and see. I'd still really like to do a big um, longitudinal cohort study, but I think I'm probably getting a bit long in the tooth to be able to do that.
1: Oh, no, still plenty of time.
0: Maybe. (laughs) Maybe.